We're continuing Jesus' Sermon on the Plain. We're looking at Luke chapter 6, verses 27 to 36. If you grabbed a Bible on the way in, you'll find that text on page 1021 if you want to follow along with us there. Jesus says, But to you who are listening, I say, love your enemies, do good to those who hate you, bless those who curse you, pray for those who mistreat you. If anyone slaps you on one cheek, turn to them the other also. If someone takes your coat, do not withhold your shirt from them. Give to everyone who asks you, and if anyone takes what belongs to you, do not demand it back. Do to others as you would have them do to you. If you love those who love you, what credit is that to you? Even sinners love those who love them. And if you do good to those who, do, who are good to you, what credit is that to you? Even sinners do that. And if you lend to those from whom you expect repayment, what credit is that to you? Even sinners lend to sinners, expecting to be repaid in full. But love your enemies, do good to them, and lend to them without expecting to get anything back. Then your reward will be great, and you will be children of the Most High, because he is kind to the ungrateful and the wicked. Be merciful, just as your Father is merciful. This is the gospel of the Lord. So like I said, we're in week two of this walk through Jesus' Sermon on the Plain, and last week we pounded this idea that you can't do it, and that's really good news. We see God's law being exposed in all of its clarity, and we realize our inability to live up to that law. And that actually sets us free because we realize we can't do it. Every bit of anger, every bit of frustration, every bit of disappointment that we have in ourselves or in others is caused by our inability to see that we can't do it. Deep down, even if we don't say it this way, we believe we can pull it off. We also believe that everyone else should be pulling it off. That they should be better than they are, or that we should be better than we are. And so we come to a text like the Sermon on the Plain, and we see it as this divine to-do list or self-help manual, this ladder that we can climb up to become better people because we deep down believe that we can. And then we quickly apply it to everyone else and say, look, this is how you should behave because this is what makes a good Christian. But to read the text that way is to mishear Jesus. Jesus is not giving us a ladder to climb, but a wall to crash into so that we realize our own insufficiency and only look to him for salvation. And in doing that, we actually do more good than we would otherwise. Because no longer are we putting on ourselves or receiving from the world the requirements of having to live up to some standard, whatever we would call it, we're free. And we can love freely. And we can be generous without expecting repayment, like the text says. We can do all those things because we realize we don't have to. That's what Jesus continues to pound on us in this Sermon on the Mount. And so... I am going to walk through each of the verses today, and we're going to talk a little bit about each of the verses, but what I want to focus on today is just how you read this text. Because you could spend months breaking down all the different verses, but I think what every one of us needs is like a reset button on how we read the scriptures. And I think the Sermon on the Plain is the place to start. 
There are really three ways that you can approach this text. Three ways that you can hear Jesus' sermon. Uh, The first of those ways is you try to figure it out. You look at these words like love your enemies, turn the other cheek, lend to your enemies without paying them, without expecting to be paid back, and you immediately start to think, okay, so how do I do that? And then you quickly realize, well, that seems really, really hard to do. So what I'm going to try to do is try to find like, like a loophole or a workaround or a, sort of a what did he really mean when he said that kind of interpretation so that I can pull it off. We go back to the, the history and we say, oh, well, what he meant in this context was not really that like you should let somebody slap you again on the other cheek. Like what he probably meant was that way we can do it. Or we think, well, yeah, lend to people without expecting to get paid back. But of course, like good stewardship, right? So we try to nuance what Jesus is saying, and we essentially take the teeth out of it. Because what we hope for is a a list of things that we can start to work at in order to get better. If you read this text and you're trying to figure it out, you're in this first kind of mode of reading the text. The second way you can read this text is you fall on your knees. You read this and you are crushed by it. Like, do good to my enemies? Like, those people who are actively seeking my demise. Lend to people without expecting anything back from them. Like, if someone steals something from me, I would actually double what they stole? If that's really what God demands, if that's, if that's seriously what Jesus is saying, I have no chance. I cannot do it. I have to fall on my knees and realize that my inability to live up to what Jesus has said right here in this text means I should go to hell forever. Now, I would say this is the proper way to read this text because that's what Jesus is hoping for us to see. But that's hard. It's hard because inside every one of us is this thing the old theologians called the opinion of the law. In other words, that we are constantly trying to find a way to be good enough. But to actually admit that we're not, that is hard. The final way that you could read this text is you aren't really affected by it. You read it and you don't really get a strong reaction to it. I mean, the first of these readings, the you try to figure it out way, it might be wrong, but at least it's passionate, right? Like, I'm inspired to try to be a better Christian tomorrow. And the second, of course, is also like impassioned by this idea that I have nowhere to look except to Jesus for forgiveness. But this third way is kind of like, yeah, okay. Yeah, he said those things. But I mean, I don't, it doesn't really bother me. I'm not really crushed by that. I think I'm living an okay life. That sort of apathy, this third way to read the text, to be honest with you, is the way that I read it for a really long time. I think I was a Christian. I don't know. Maybe I wasn't. But I didn't care what Jesus really said. I could know it. I could fill it out on a test. I could, rep- I could memorize it and speak it back to you. But as far as like, letting it actually hit me as if God were actually saying these things to me, I didn't let it happen. And I think this is the, the stance of somebody who is defensive before God. They want the thing that God has, but not the relationship with God. 
They're like the younger son. Do you remember this story of the two sons that Jesus tells? The younger son and an older son. The younger son goes to his father and says, Father, give me my share of the inheritance. In other words, he says to his father, Father, you're better to me dead than alive. I want your stuff. I don't want you. And when we read this text and we're not immediately affected by it, I think that's the same attitude. We kind of just want the goodness of calling ourselves Christians or being around Christian people. But we don't actually want to take Jesus seriously. So what I want to do for the rest of the text is is walk through this and, and expose it and help us see what it says. But then I want us to all evaluate, as I read this text, how do I read it? Do I read it as a to-do list that I'm trying to figure out? Do I read it as a wall that I gloriously crash into? Or do I read it as just something interesting that Jesus said? So let's dive in. Jesus says, but to you who are listening, I say, love your enemies. Do good to those who hate you. Bless those who curse you. And pray for those who mistreat you. So that person, you know who they are. That person who gets on your nerves, gets under your skin. You kind of wish you didn't have to see them regularly, but they're kind of always there. That person who you fantasize about that, that you would just tell them off that one time where you'd get all the words right and you would show them. That person who is actively seeking your harm whether it's physical, whether it's emotional, whether it's psychological. That person who is trying to take from you the good things that you have. That person who doesn't really care about you. They just care about themselves and they're using you to advance themselves. Love them. And not just like love them like I'm not going to be as angry as I probably should be at them. Not love them like, okay, I'm just going to try to avoid them. No, like actively seek out ways to bless them, to bring good into their life, to pray for them regularly, to bring the blessings that you have, that God has given you to them. How are we doing at that? I mean, not very well, right? What we tend to do to our enemies is we tend to gossip about them, try to get revenge on them, or try to build up a case in our own mind or maybe amongst our friends that we're in the right and they're in the wrong. But let's take it a step farther. What if it wasn't just love your enemies? What if it was love your neighbor? Or love your spouse? Or love your kids? Or love your friends? Or love your fellow church members? Yeah, sometimes we might do some things that are at least somewhat loving, but are we perfectly doing this all the time? Not even with the people that we claim to love. God's standard is to be perfectly generous and kind and good and blessing to all people, especially those who are your enemies. But you don't. I don't. And we deserve to go to hell for it. Jesus continues, if someone slaps you on one cheek, turn to them the other also. Now, I think, again, it's easy to try to explain these verses away. To say things like, oh, well, yeah, if you're like in an abusive relationship, then you should get out of that abusive relationship. Or to say things like, if someone hurts you, that doesn't mean you have to stay in close to them so they can slap you again. To be honest, I don't think we can take the teeth out of this. This is what Jesus said. 
Now, we also have to understand that this happens in a broken world, and that because of that broken world, there are going to be sort of safeguards that we're going to have to place around ourselves. That certainly is true, but that's not embedded in what Jesus said. What Jesus expects is that we would be absolutely forgiving so much to a person that we would continue to be in their life even if they would continue to hurt us. Do you realize how impossible that is? One way that a commentator put it is that, you know, if someone slaps you on the cheek, right, if they slap you on the side of your face, your face is going to turn with the slap. And it's so easy in that moment to turn away from a person. But that what Jesus is asking us to do is instead of turning our back on a person, that we would continue to turn toward them. That we would continue to be present with them. That we would continue to care about them. That when someone harms us, the first thing that we would think about is not ourselves, but them. How hard is that? When someone says something unkind to me, when someone is thoughtless around me, the first person I think about is me. How do I feel about that? Is that true about me? But Jesus says the first thing you ought to think about is them. Maybe a helpful way to think about this is Psalm 51. You remember this psalm uh, right after David has stolen a man's wife and then killed the man so he could keep his wife. He writes this psalm of repentance and he says to God, against you, you only have I sinned. And if you read the story, you're like, hold on. Didn't he sin against Bathsheba, the woman? And didn't he sin against Uriah, the man he killed? And not to mention all the other men who died when Uriah was killed in battle and the child that had to die because of David's sin. Like, didn't he sin against all those other people? And David says, no, against God only have I sinned. Because what David understands is what we should understand from Scripture. Sin, it may be carried out against us, but it is ultimately against God. And so Jesus would have us perfectly recognize that. Then when a person hurts me, it's not because they actually hate me, it's because they hate God. And I'm in the way. God would have us perfectly forgive every person who harms us and stay with them. Jesus continues, if someone takes your coat, do not withhold your shirt from them. Give to everyone who asks you, and if anyone takes what belongs to you, do not demand it back. So he says, if someone takes something from you, give them double. Like, just think about that for a moment. Even with the things that we intentionally give other people. You think about how much you, you might be generous to a friend, or generous to your church, or generous to your children. You calculate, don't you? This is how much we can afford. This is how much is probably healthy for them. Jesus says, whatever you thought, double it. How hard is that? And then he says, as you give, don't expect to get anything back. If it's a loan, don't expect to be repaid. If it's something that doesn't function so much like a loan, don't expect that your giving is necessarily going to be handled the way you want it to be done. And probably an easy example of that is like, if you would give to a church, you know, how easy it is to calculate, is the church using my money correctly? And of course they should be. But Jesus asks you to give without consideration of that. But we don't. We calculate, we bean count, we figure out what can I do, what works for me, what's in my surplus, what's healthy for them. We don't just give with this kind of generosity. 
Jesus then says, do to others as you would have them do to you. And again, I think as I read this, at least at first, I sort of try to realize this, like make it realistic. Like, what do I want other people to do to me? Well, I put that in a realistic sense, like, okay, what I can reasonably expect from human beings in the world is like, I would like them not to try to kill me, generally be kind to me, and probably not take my stuff. Right? And so then we think, well, that's what I should do to other people. But that's not what Jesus is saying. Jesus is saying that, like, that deep desire that you have, for how you really want people to treat you. I don't know about you, confession time. How I really want people to treat me is like the king of the world. Like I'm awesome and everything I touch is gold and that they're, they are blessed just to be in my presence. That's what I deep down really want. Jesus says, do that to other people. In our Bible study right now on Tuesday nights, we're going through the book of Esther. You remember this story? There's a man named Haman. And Haman is so full of himself that when he goes into Xerxes, the emperor, he says, uh, Xerxes asks him, what should I do for a man that I really want to honor? And Haman immediately thinks, oh, he's talking about me. So here's what we're going to do. We're going to get the royal horse. We're going to get the royal clothes. We're going to get the royal flags. We're going to get some trumpeteers. We're going to throw a huge party for this guy that you really want to honor. And then Xerxes says, okay, yeah, Haman, what you said there, that's good. I like it. Do it for Mordecai. Jesus is calling us to the same thing. But how many of us are Haman when we go through life? Jesus then says, if you love those who love you, what credit is that to you? Even sinners love those who love them. And if you do good to those who do good to you, what credit is that to you? Even sinners do that. And if you lend to those from whom you expect repayment, what credit is it to you? Even sinners lend to sinners expecting to be repaid in full. In other words, what he says is, your life needs to look even like a smidge different than the lives of everyone else around you who doesn't claim to follow Jesus. But how many of us can say that? I catch myself using the same language, caring about the same things, obsessing over the same problems, worrying about the same disasters, fretting over the same financial difficulties, spending my money on the same things as people around me who don't care a lick about Jesus. And these words condemn me. And I think they condemn you too. Like even if we could be just a tiny bit different. But we're not. We're still sinful. We still fall. And we're still not good enough for God. And so Jesus finishes with these words. Love your enemies. Do good to them. Lend to them without expecting to get anything back. And then your reward will be great. And you will be children of the most high God because he is kind to the ungrateful and the wicked. Be merciful as your father is merciful. And we think to ourselves, okay, here it goes. I don't know that I can do it perfectly, but I'm certainly going to try because a reward with God sounds like a pretty good thing. So if I can just drum up enough self, self, um, self-motivation, if I can only figure out how to organize my life right, the right way, if I can only fix my schedule, if I can only get rid of all the things that seem to make life go bad, if I can just figure it out, then I'll be good. But we won't. And so how are you doing? 
as you read this text, are you reading it like a to-do list, the divine ladder that you can climb to be good enough for God? Or has it revealed itself to you to be a glorious wall? God wants us to realize how far short we fall so that we can first of all realize how much we need him, but then also realize how great his love is for us. Brothers and sisters, if you are not loving your enemies, and if you are not being forgiving, and if you are not being radically generous, and if you are, frankly, not living any different than the world around you, you are an enemy of God. You do not deserve to be in God's presence. You deserve to be punished forever. But here's the good news. God loves his enemies. See how quickly we read a verse. Like, be merciful as just as your father is merciful and immediately make it about us. Oh, I need to be merciful just like God is merciful. When we totally miss the point, which is Jesus announcing to us how merciful God is. Do you know how merciful God is? God does good to his enemies. The Bible tells us that we were by nature objects of God's wrath, that we were in enmity, enemies between him, uh, with him, that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us, that he did good to us when we did not deserve to be loved, that he blesses us even as we daily do not live like those who have been saved, he continues to give us our daily bread and far more than that, double, even triple or quadruple what we deserve. When our sin slapped Jesus on the cheek and nailed him to the cross, he continued to let his face shine upon us so that that sin that we had between him and us could be taken away and our relationship could be restored. And Jesus continues to give and give and give without ever expecting repayment from us because he's merciful. And rather than seeing this as an opportunity for you to try to be a good person, Jesus wants you to realize you can't be, but I've made you one. And so maybe if we were going to sum up this message, we would say something like, get your eyes off yourself and off everyone else and put them on Jesus. Because everything that's disappointing and everything that's frustrating and everything that's anger-inducing and cringeworthy in your life is a result of you looking at yourself or at someone else. Something as simple as you're driving down the road and all those irritating drivers, you know the ones, they don't put the blinker on the right way. They're not going the right speed. They don't really care about who's around them. You know why that irritates you? Because you think you're a pretty good driver. You think you're pulling it off. And you think everybody else should too. Or those moments when your kids are just absolutely frustrating that you want to blow your top in a couple of theirs as well. Why does that happen? Because you believe you can pull it off or they can pull it off. That they could be good enough, that you could be good enough. Those moments you're at work and your boss does not seem to care that you're actually like a real human being, just seems to treat you like a cog in the system. Why does that bother you? Because you believe you can pull it off and be somebody. 
When you're fighting against that sin that continues to rear its ugly head in your life and you can't seem to beat it down, why does that bother you? Because you continue to look at yourself through your own eyes, not through Jesus' eyes, who sees you as completely loved and accepted, forgiven in him. When you look at somebody else and their behavior continues to irritate you because they don't seem to realize what God says in his word, why does that bother you? Because you think you're reading God's word correctly and you think you're actually following it. But what Jesus wants us all to do is to crash into this wall of the law and realize that none of us have lived up to his standard. But that's not the point. The point is that he has lived up to the standard, that he has been merciful, that he has been generous, that Jesus has been good to us. And because of that, we are saved. Not because we were good, but because he was. The freedom that you have is to not have to live up to every standard that you impose on yourself or the culture imposes on yourself or that you read in the scriptures. It is done. It is finished. Jesus calls you a completed project. You are, you are completely righteous before Jesus. You're set free. So the second point that I have in my notes for you is this test. And maybe it's helpful for you to think about this as you, as you read the text. If we throw out that third way of reading the text, which is to basically ignore it and not care what Jesus has to say. If you're one of those two, those first two, you're trying to figure it out or you're falling on your knees, here's the test to see which of those you are. You think of Jesus more and everyone less. Like if you're stressed out about yourself and your behavior and your kids' behavior and your family's behavior and your neighbor's behavior and your church's behavior, then you don't get it. But as, as you look at this text, if, it, if you realize that this flattens you and it flattens them and then it pronounces God's, it is finished, complete grace on all of you, then you get it. Get your eyes off yourself and get them on Jesus. So let me finish with this. Every other church that does not preach this is preaching to you, be good. And that will never work. It's like telling a paraplegic, jump a little bit higher. You know it. You know the sin that you have. You know your inability. If I were to stand up here and give you this list and say, be a better person, it wouldn't work. The only thing that works is God's grace. And so someone might say to me, okay, you're going to pronounce this amazing one-way arrow pointing down from God to us, love, that we don't have to do it. We are no longer responsible for fulfilling the law in any way. Aren't people going to like just start sinning because they have that kind of grace? The answer is they were doing just fine sinning before. But now they have hope. And now they have a reason to do good to their neighbor and their enemy, to be generous like no one else is generous. Because they don't have to keep things for themselves. They don't have to build up themselves. They don't have to gain for themselves. They don't have to pull it off. They are outside of themselves, using the resources of, of body, mind, spirit, money, time, energy for everyone else because this has been taken care of. So walk out of this door free, brothers and sisters. Every bit of you has been declared a finished product by God. May God grant that that empowers your living. Amen. Let's pray.
Lord Jesus, allow us to crash into the glorious wall of your law so that we can look up only in hope for your forgiveness and then assure us of that forgiveness. Assure us through the words of our pastor who forgives our sins, through your body and blood in the Lord's Supper that give us tangible forgiveness in the remembrance of our baptism which has forgiven our sins. And then set us on a mission as free people, unleashed, not to have to worry about ourselves, but to have every right to look at you and to serve our neighbor. We ask that for ourselves in our congregation and the lives that we are able to touch through that work. Amen.